I know you've heard it said, to God be the glory. I'm sure you've heard it said, we live for God's glory. But what does that really mean? It's such an abstract statement that it's really hard to practically realize at times. You know, many pay lip service to living for God's glory, when in actuality they're living for their own glory. Let me ask you this. When a basketball player scores 50 points and says at a news conference at the end of the game, all glory to God, does his statement really give glory to God if, hypothetically, that player is living out a sinful lifestyle, perhaps in adultery? Think about that. When a musician plays and ends a wonderful concert and and says, all glory be to God, Does it really give glory to God when that musician makes that statement and yet they unashamedly live a lifestyle that is clearly contrary to what is written in the Word of God? If someone wins an academic competition and says, all glory to God, do they really glorify God with that achievement when they disregard a personal relationship with Him in private prayer or in corporate worship just to obtain that achievement. And yet we really don't think about those things. We simply take it at face value that when someone ascribes glory to God, then indeed God is glorified. But how do we really glorify God with our lives as we are commanded to do so in the Scriptures? That's what we want to explore this morning as we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel. I'd like you to turn with me this morning to the book of Ezekiel in your Bibles or electronic Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38 as we go from chapter 38 to 43. Don't worry, we'll only spot highlight some of the important verses that is relevant to our talk this morning. What we want to take a look at this morning are three conditions in our lives that must be present, that must be lived out for God to be truly glorified, all right? Let's take a look. As you're turning to Ezekiel chapter 38, if you remember earlier in our study of this book, when we studied chapter 10, we were told that God's physical presence on the earth is represented by the glory of God above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant had left the temple in Jerusalem. And the reason the glory of God had left, albeit reluctantly, was because of Israel's terrible sin. They brought the worship of false gods into the very temple of the one true God. And for centuries, God's physical presence through His glory on earth was nowhere to be found. In that historical setting, at the time when Ezekiel writes these words from God, the city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed and the temple along with it. And so for the people, they thought that there was no chance that God's glory would ever return to their beloved city, most especially since their temple was destroyed. But in a message to encourage His people, God tells the people of Israel that He will return to a future temple and His glory would return. If you have time, I'd like you to go in your homes and read chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel as inspired by God, prophesies about an attack on Israel by Gog and Magog, along with other nations, most likely happening during the Great Tribulation. But the Bible tells us that these nations would be destroyed by God. Why? Because look at chapter 39, verse 21 and 22. God insists that His glory will once again be upon the earth, and Israel will once again come back to Him. Chapter 39, verses 21 and 22. God says, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Bible tells us the glory of God will be declared to all the nations in the millennial kingdom in the future. And part of that restoration of His people 
is that God will reorganize this nation into a way where He is in a relationship with them that He so desires. And therefore, He will set up for them a new temple, a new way of worship, a new way of dividing the land among the 12 tribes that are reconstituted. But we're going to focus on the new temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, if I were to ask you a question this morning, how many temples are mentioned in the Bible? I hope you would know. And if you don't know, there are four. The first temple of God is Solomon's temple. It's really God's temple built by Solomon, but we refer to it as Solomon's temple. And that was just destroyed in the historical context of this book by the Babylonians. Then later, under the Persians, as you know, the Jewish people were allowed to return. And a man by the name of Zerubbabel comes back and helps the people and challenges them to rebuild the temple. And as refugees, in a sense, coming back to this land, they could only muster up enough resources to build a temple, but it wasn't very nice. And the people wept because Zerubbabel's temple wasn't as nice as the glory and the splendor and the grandeur of Solomon's temple. Fast forward to the New Testament, and King Herod is trying to establish his authority over the land of Palestine. Of course, you know that King Herod is not Jewish. He is an Edomian, and to curry favor with the Jews, he will renovate and he will expand that which they most love, the temple. And so he does that. He expands and renovates Zerubbabel's temple. And because it is so magnificent, this new renovation, that they now change the term to Herod's temple. And that's how we refer to it as Herod's temple. But it's only the second one. It was said in the ancient world that you have not seen a beautiful building unless you've seen the temple of Herod in Jerusalem. But that was destroyed by General Titus and the Romans in 70 A.D. And there is no temple even up to today. But then the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel that in the Great Tribulation there will be a third temple, the Tribulational Temple. And then the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 9 that the Antichrist will destroy it. Which then brings us to this fourth temple, which is the temple that will be built in the millennium, the Millennial Temple which is far bigger and far grander than the previous three, because this one will last forever. And this is the temple that is described in great detail in chapters 40 to 43. Just look with me at chapter 40, verse 1 to 4. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and took me there. In the visions of God, He took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it towards the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, Look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here, note this, so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Following verse 4 of chapter 40, all the way to chapter 43, is a very detailed description with measurement of the future millennial temple. It's so detailed that most of you, when you read these chapters, will probably find it quite boring. Only an architect or an engineer would appreciate the detail and the measurements that Ezekiel writes out for the people of Israel. Now, why is this millennial temple given in such detail? It's because God wants us to know and God wants them to know that it is a literal temple. Some folks say, well, it's just a symbolic temple of the house of God. No. Why spend four chapters in this book to describe in detail the millennial temple? Is because God wants to tell them that this is the future home of God's splendid glory, where He will once again reside on earth. Now, if you took the time and measured everything out, you will see that this millennial temple was much bigger than Solomon's temple, which was for the Jewish people the first, and therefore for them the best. 
because it would signify a new relationship between God and His children under the new covenant. This was a new place of worship. Oh, what an encouragement it must have been to a people who were feeling quite dejected. Their beloved temple was destroyed. But God says, I promise you a new one. A new one bigger and better that will last forever. Now what made this temple so special was that the presence of the living God resided there. Because without God's glory residing in the temple, it would just be like any of the other previous temples. It would simply be another building. So why does God's glory now return? Because now certain conditions have been met. Look over at chapter 43. We're going to focus ourselves on verses 1 to 12. What are the conditions by which God's glory now returns back to His temple? Verse 1 of chapter 43. Afterward, He took me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the visions which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces towards the east. The glory of God comes in a quite dramatic way. It comes the very same way in which it left, through the east. It returns with the full grandeur and the full majesty that is ascribed to the Lord. In fact, to emphasize this point, Ezekiel says, it is the same vision, it is the same glory that I saw, that I saw in chapter 1 by the river Kabar. And you go back to chapter 1 and read the full glory of God and how it is expressed. But in the fullness of God's glory now returning, why does it now return to the millennial temple of all time and places, we have to remember why it first left. The glory of God left the temple because the people had brought defilement, had brought sin into the very house of God. Remember of the fifth message of this sermon series? We talked about how these priests who were called to serve God secretly brought in dirty idols. And because a holy God can have nothing to do with sin, God, in His glory, reluctantly left. But now He returns because the conditions in this new temple are such that His glory is able to return. And from the conditions described, we can draw out applicationally some biblical principles of the environment and the conditions that must be addressed in our lives So that when we say to God be the glory, indeed, God is glorified. What are these two, three principles? Let's take a look. The first one, verses 5 to 7. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard Him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And He said to me, Son of man, This is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry. Notice verse 7 tells us that when His glory resides, it is a place that should not be defiled, specifically defiled with the sin of harlotry by the leaders and the people. You see, in this new temple, they no longer adulterate themselves to other gods. It was a situation where the people were no longer drawn to other false gods and other idols. You see, number one, if you're taking notes, God is glorified when our life's focus is solely on Him and no one else. God is glorified when our life's focus is only on Him and no one else. God's glory returned to the Millennial Temple because the people of Israel no longer wanted to or worshipped false gods and graven images. Their sole focus 
was on the Lord God. You see, my friends, glory is not simply paying lip service and saying phrases like, to God be the glory. It is centered on how you live your life and what you focus your life on. You see, we focus on objects, people, and things because it is something to behold. When we focus on something, we bring glory to it. And so we are to focus on God because His glory is worthy of our complete attention. It's like when we see a brand new car, a new Lamborghini or a new Ferrari. We stare at that car. Or when we see an awe-inspiring human feet that we can't do ourselves, we are glued to what they are doing. Or when we see a stunningly gorgeous woman or a handsome man, which should be how you look at your wife and husband, we can't take our eyes off of him or her. When we place our focus and look with intensity and focus, then we give that person, place, or object or event glory. In the same way, when our full attention is on the things of God above all else, it shows that we glorify God. Now listen carefully. God is not glorified if you achieve something great and then even ascribe to Him that glory, if in the course of your achieving that greatness, that you have cut corners in your personal walk with Him, in your corporate worship with fellow believers, simply to get that achievement. You see, if someone were to give a speech after they have received an award, and they want to bring honor to their parents' name, and they say, you know what? It's because of how my parents raised me that I received this award and I want to give them back all honor and glory. They deserve this award as much as I do. You've heard many speeches like that. It would be a hypocritical speech if you knew that they really didn't care much about their parents. They would visit their parents once every three years. They would ignore them. But people can say whatever they want. It's not what they say. It's how they live it out. God's glory is evident in your life. When your life exhibits itself with a clear focus on Him and Him alone. That's why Jesus, if you remember that interaction with Mary and Martha, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening intently at what Jesus was saying, focused on Him. Now Mary... Many of us would identify with her. But then there was Martha. Martha was running around. Martha knew that an honored guest had come into her house. And she wanted the best for Jesus. And perhaps she was preparing a wonderful meal. But as she was running around preparing for that dinner, perhaps, every time she saw Mary, she got angrier and angrier. Why? Because while she's busy, Mary's just sitting there. I'm sure you've had that same experience. When you finally see Mary one more time, you can't take it and you've got to say something. And Martha turns to Jesus and tells Jesus, Jesus, make Mary help me. All she's doing is sitting down listening to you. You remember those words of Jesus to Martha in Luke chapter 10, verse 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, you are worried and trouble about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Jesus was, was admonishing Martha. Martha, lives honor me when they focus on me. It's not in what you do for me, although that's important. It's how you live your life while you're doing those things. That's why I've given a similar admonishment even at the last Volunteers Appreciation Lunch to the more than 400 gathered there. I said, 
If any of you are serving, and if you are somehow, because of your serving, skipping the corporate worship of God, or even the private worship of God at home, I would rather you quit serving in our church so that you have no excuse not to focus on the worship of God. Because that's how you glorify Him. We think that serving glorifies God, and it does. But it has to be coupled where our lives are focused on Him as well. So if you're serving in the choir or in the teaching ministry or teaching children or any other things you're doing in this church, if you're serving and yet not going to church, you have my excuse to your ministry head to tell them you are going to pull back. Because nothing, even serving, should replace a life that is solely focused on Him and no one else. Because then that service becomes an idol. God does not share His glory with another, which connotes that He is not glorified if our focus is not solely on Him. And the reason the glory returns now to the temple is because the idolatrous things, the idols have been removed. And if you read chapters 40 to 43, worship is solely on the living God. Listen carefully. God cares more about how you honor Him with your life in faithful focus on Him than what is actually achieved. Did you hear that? God cares more about how you honor Him with your life in faithful focus on Him than what is actually achieved. Let that sink in. We're so proud of what we actually achieve, and yet God is looking for faithful focus. Do you remember that story of King David? King David, the man who loved God with all of his heart. Here is a man who wanted to honor God and glorify his name. And so he told God, God, in the golden years of my life, in the climax of my kingship, I want to build you your temple. I want you to be glorified. I want to build your temple. What did God tell David? It must have broken his heart. David, thank you for your desire. But you are a man of war. There's blood on your hand. I will have your son build a temple. But if you want, you can collect all the materials for him. You can prepare the construction material. That's how you'll glorify me. And I wonder how many of us, if we were in David's shoes, would say, you know what, God? Thanks for the offer, but let me do something else. Because we're all credit-driven. That's why to this day, that first temple is known as Solomon's temple, not David's temple. It's not known as Solomon's temple and David's temple who helped prepare the materials. The credit is not his. And so most of us would say, you know what, if I don't get my name on it, I'm not doing it. And yet if you read the scriptures and the account in Chronicles and in First and Second Samuel, you will see that David sees as the crowning achievement of his kingship, what? preparation and the collection of the building materials. David says, Lord, if that is what's going to glorify your name, I will with gusto collect the best of material. And if you read the scriptures, it goes into detail what he did. Now most of us would say, what? Collecting materials is important, but it's not a great achievement that you can ascribe to God. But God saw in the heart of David a man who was faithfully focused on doing whatever he asked him to do because his focus was on him and therefore David's collection of materials glorified him. Remember Lazarus? He got sick. Jesus said about Lazarus' sickness which led to death. John, 4, John 11 verse 4. This sickness is not unto death, but what? 
but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. What? A sickness can bring glory to God? You see, we have this notion that somehow, only with straight A's, where you can then give the valedictory speech and proclaim, God be glorified, does that really honor God? We have this notion in our world today that we've got to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And therefore, at a a gathering of all the businessmen of the world, we can say, glory be to God, and that alone gives glory to God. We have this notion that we've got to be head of our division, and that at our promotional ceremony, we have the opportunity to testify for God. Now, all those things can be avenues where God is glorified, but don't you forget that even in your sickness, even when you're mopping the floor, even when you're washing dishes, even when you're caring for your children, you are glorifying God when your life's focus is on Him and Him alone. That glorification of God is just as important than someone standing on the stage and declaring it to the world. God is glorified when our life's focus is only on Him. The second condition by which the glory of God returned, look at verse 7 to verse 9. The last phrase of verse 7. Or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places, when they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with the wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Verse 9. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Now, what does the carcasses of the kings in their high places mean? It meant that some of the kings of Israel thought it would be a great idea that when they die, that they would be buried very close to the temple. And that is what some of them did. But the problem is that when God instructed Solomon to build his first temple, God gave them very specific rules put in place to show that the holiness of this place is not to be defiled. And in the rules around the temple of God, God says nothing dead should come anywhere close to my temple. And yet these rulers after the centuries didn't care very much about God's rules and the decorum of making holy what God has said is holy. They didn't care much about God's glory. They perhaps just wanted the privilege, they thought, of being buried close to God's temple. And that's what they did. And the Bible tells us in verse 8 that only a doorpost, a wall, separated these dead bodies with the holy places. God says, I have now returned and will return in the millennial temple because these defiled things, not verse 9, have been taken far away from me. Listen carefully. Here's the biblical principle. The farther sin is taken away, the greater God's glory will be revealed. The further the sin is taken away, the greater the glory of God. Mankind's sin and God's holiness must be separated. They do not mix like water and oil. If there are sinful things nearby, God's glory will run away. We need to understand number two. Number two, if you're taking notes. God is glorified when our lives remove evil and sinful things. God is glorified when in our lives sin and evil things are separated far away. When we castigate the sinful lifestyle that we live, when we throw out and reject sinful living, we create an environment where God's glory can reside 
And he is able then to, fully, to share and show his full glory, to express it another way. We live for the glory of God when we live in holiness. We live for the glory of God when we live in holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vehicle in sanctification and honor. Verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. What truly glorifies God in your life is when we live in holiness separated from sin. A young man or young woman, a teenager, doesn't really glorify God with his collection of trophies and medals obtained. And yet that's what our competitive world seems to indicate is what will glorify God. But great glory will be brought to the name of God when that young man and that young woman keeps their virginity until the day of their marriage. That is what keeps, gives God glory. A, an adult, a working professional, doesn't give glory to God by simply saying that he ascribes his accomplishment to God when he receives a great honor from the business world. But what glorifies God is that regardless of whether you receive an award or not from your fellow friends, is that you have run your business in an upright manner. That is what gives glory to God in your business. I know so many businesses that have plastered on their wall, to God be the glory, and that if you look, they have two books in their finances. They use unethical means. How in the world do they even have the audacity to plaster as their company motto, to God be the glory. God is not glorified because God's holiness and man's sin have to be far away from each other. When the blurring of good and the blurring of evil are tolerated, even justified, God does not allow His glory to shine. This is a warning to our church as well. When the church doesn't call sin for what it is, when the church tolerates sin, thinking that sin is justified because of God's grace, which is the wrong idea of God's grace, by the way, that because God is forgiving and because God is gracious and merciful, then we tolerate sin, then God's glory does not reside in His church You see, when we speak the truth, we do so in love. But we should never compromise holiness. And this principle is, is exemplified. Remember that interaction with Jesus and the woman who was accused of adultery? You know, I love the fact that in that interaction, when those religious leaders brought this woman, who for sure probably committed adultery, they defined this woman by her sin, this adulterous woman. And yet Jesus never defined her by her sin. She was the woman who had committed adultery. God showed forth His grace and does not define people by their sin. And yet what was the admonition, remember, when He wrote on the ground and each one of them left one by one until there was no more? He asked the woman, Is there anyone here to accuse you? And she said, No one. And what does the Lord say to her? Go and sin no more. What a wonderful balance from our Savior to teach us about grace and yet a demand for holiness. Go. I forgive you. Go. But it's not me saying that you should just continue to live your life as such. Go, but sin no more. I still demand holiness from you. Let me ask you, church, how far is sin and sinful acts away from your life? Do you still practice sin? If you do, God is not glorified in your life, whatever you achieve. doesn't mean we'll be perfect, 
But if you hold sin to be ugly and dirty and have no place in your life, then you are allowing God to be glorified through your life. The third condition, look at verse 10 to 11 to 12. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. God tells Ezekiel, I gave them such a detailed blueprint for this perfect millennial temple to remind them of their sin and iniquity. To remind them that it was because of them and they did not follow God's instruction that their beloved first temple was destroyed. And God says, I will give them a picture of a perfect temple to remind them that they are now to live faithfully as they prepare themselves for a future temple area, as verse 12 tells us, that will be a holy area because God's presence is there. Let me bring it uh, to a practical application in your life. It's like, for example, I was to tell my children, children, 10 years from now, we're going to move in to an amazingly big mansion. It's an example only. We're not. But we're going to move into an amazingly big mansion. It's going to have an indoor swimming pool. It's going to have an amazing living room where the floor is marble, and it's going to be more than 300 square meters. We're going to live in a place where it's going to be gold-plated everything. It's going to be a place that is spotlessly clean, not a single dirt on anything. In fact, you have to wear special covering to enter this place. And if you ever dirty it or bring dirt into it, we're going to kick you out. But this, and you're all going to get your own rooms. It's going to be amazing. But that's going to happen in 10 years. So you've got to practice now, kids, to clean your own rooms, to pick up after yourself so that you can prepare to live in that place. I wish I could tell them that because they're a mess. Their rooms are a mess, but it's the same idea. God so clearly lays out this beautiful temple in order that those who read it would understand that they need to live their lives now set to the standard that God has set for them for how they are to live in this new place. You see, number three, God is glorified when we live our lives according to His standards in preparation for when we see Him. God is glorified when we live our lives according to His standards in preparation for when we see Him. God very clearly gave the people of Israel and a future generation how exactly to build his temple. It is the standard by which God says you are to build it. And yet many of us live our lives not beholden to the standards that God has set for us to live in the Scriptures. We live our lives using our own standards and our own measurement. And we think, well, as long as I'm good enough, God will be pleased. Where in the world did we get that idea? Well, I go to church every Sunday. I tithe every week. I even am a part of a Bible study. God should be pleased with my life. I'm generally good. Here we are making up our own standards for how we think God will approve of us. But you know, God is a God of order. He is not manipulated. God is a God of detail. He has instructed us very clearly how we are to live our lives so that He can be glorified. It is important that He sets the criteria. 
to show us that His criteria and standards do not change. And we honor Him when we align our lives to His standard. The year end is coming, and so you'll be all going to a lot of your Christmas parties and your end year end parties, and the warding at various schools happen usually at this midway point. And for sure, in many of your companies, at awarding evening, at the Christmas party, the company will award the employee of the year, the model employee of the year. Now, how many of you, when you're there, and they announce the model employee of the year, and you're not him or her, how many of you are clapping, saying, yeah, you know what, that person, he deserved it more than I did? You may be politely clapping, but I'm thinking, you're thinking, and I probably know you're thinking, because I've thought the same thing, that guy? That guy doesn't deserve it. I'm better than him. I deserve it. Right? You know, when awards, model student of the year, half of the student body is willing to raise their hand and say, excuse me, I'm going to give you an example where he wasn't the model student. Everyone thinks they are deserving of the award. You see, the problem is this. Our human heart thinks that we're better than someone else. So how do companies, how do schools alleviate, at least generally, this feeling where it was an unfair award? Before the award is given, they tell you the criteria, hopefully. They tell you the standards in which they chose to choose the student of the year, the teacher of the year, the model employee of the year. But how do you define that? You see, to alleviate that sort of skepticism, criteria must be given. Now, the Bible says, if you want to glorify me with your life, if you really love me and want to glorify me with your life, I've given you the criteria. You should match your life with the standards set in the Scriptures. It's a standard that does not change. Because if the criteria and the standards are always shifting, it's very hard to live. I don't know if you read in the news uh, just this week that they changed the criteria for how to measure one kilogram. Did you read that in the newspapers? Uh, apparently, uh, for those of you who don't know, you wonder, how do they determine what is one kilogram? One kilogram. You go to the wet market, you wonder. The scales they use don't seem to be very accurate. But there is a defining number and a defining measurement for what is one kilogram. And for more than a century, the weight of a platinum-based ingot called Le Grand K, the Grand K, is locked away in a safe in Paris, France. And that is the measurement by which one kilogram is weighed all across the world. They've made copies of Le Grand K, and they place it all around the world. So that if you're unsure about how much is one kilogram, you can compare it to Le Grand K and the copies made to make sure that what you say is one kilogram is one kilogram. But apparently they've noticed that this master kilogram and its copies seem to change ever so slightly. It's deteriorating, as all material things are. And although the rate of deterioration is very minuscule, and I forgot, it was like .0000 something in deterioration, you say, what's the big deal? It's critical in many areas where accurate measurement is greatly needed, like in drug development or nanotechnology or precision engineering. And so they decided, because of this deterioration, we need to have a new standard because the standard of a kilogram used around the world must be the same. And so last Friday, in the worldwide conference of weights and measurement, what a boring conference, I don't know what they do in that conference, but in, in the worldwide conference of weights and measurement, they decided unanimously to change 
how they measure the kilogram from that platinum ingot to something that uses an electrical current. Don't ask me how that's done. But now there is a standard to measure the kilogram without shifting. Now, if the world is so concerned about the precision of the standard of a weight of measurement, we as Christians even more need to make sure that when God tells us this is the standard, that it does not shift. Because if God gives us something specific and we change it, you know what happens? We're bringing the glory to ourselves. What do I mean by that? Let's say, for example, the future contractors who will build this millennial temple get the specification from Ezekiel, which is where they'll get it. And they begin to build it, and God gives them the plan, the blueprint for the millennial kingdom. And then he, quote-unquote, goes away for a year, he comes back, and the contractor says, well, here's your building. And God, the architect, says, well, excuse me, you've moved the river of life. How come the tree of life isn't there where I had it indicated? Why is the courtyard bigger? Well, we thought there'd be a lot more Christians, so we made the courtyard bigger. Uh, and uh, we, we, we spruced up the, the changing rooms. Well, Lord, we just wanted to make it better. Think about what has just been said. When you and I begin to change the rules of God, we are saying to God, we know better than you. And if we know better than you, then therefore glory should be given to me. That's why God says in verse 11, very, very clearly, write it down in their sight. Let them see you writing it, so that what they may keep its whole design and all its ordinance and perform them. God says, make sure they execute it according to what I have planned problem with the Christian life today is that we take what God has perfectly planned for our lives and we think it's open for improvement. I am so sorry, my friends. If you think that God's perfect plan for your life is open for improvement, then you're bringing glory only unto yourself. You see, some people have the notion that God's standards and rules don't apply in the 21st century because God is out of touch with reality. God is clueless in how hard life is now in the 21st century. That is the wrong view of God. God knows exactly how life is lived in the 21st century. In fact, He knows how life is to be lived in the 22nd century. But the timeless truth of the Scriptures is just as applicable today as the moment it was inspired and written down. Do you get that? Don't you ever justify in your minds that somehow God's perfect design for how men and women are to live in relationship to Him somehow changes with the culture and the times today. God's standard never changes. He says marriage is between one man and one woman. He says, he says that the beauty of a sexual relationship is in the bounds of marriage. He says we are to live in holiness these do not change with our times. But we've forgotten that. That's how you glorify God with your life, when you live according to the standards in which He has set. We're going to sing a response song. And I love these words. It says, Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as He promised, what? Perfect peace and rest. When our hearts and lives are aligned to God's standards, we're going to find that He's promised a life is a blessed life. Perfect peace and rest. Understand, my friends, God is glorified when we live our lives according to His standards in preparation for the day we see Him. And we don't have time, but in verses 13 to the end of the chapter, the dimensions of the millennial altar are given, and that there is instruction for a consecration service. And this is done because God's glory has officially returned to the temple. The restoration of this ideal condition between Him and His people 
And therefore, quote-unquote, he's open for business. That's what he says. Look at verse 27. I will accept you. I'm ready for you. God is ready to be in a working relationship with his people when they consecrate themselves, when they set their lives apart. And what does that look like? It begins with a self-examination of your life and my life. A self-examination of your life and my life. Ask yourself this morning, are there any things that take me away from my sole focus and attention of the Lord? Let me remove these things from my life so that I can glorify God. Are there idols in my life, the idol of possession, the idol of prestige, the idol of position, the idol of any material things that takes my attention from the sole focus of God. Let me remove those things so that I can glorify God. Second self-examination question. Are there any evil actions? Are there any objects, sinful attitudes in my life that need to be separated from the way I live my life in order to glorify Him? That's a question only you can answer. Is there sinful attitudes? Are there evil things in my life that need to go far, far away? The Bible tells us in order that God's glory may be fully seen in our life. Thirdly, is there anything in my life that is lived against the standard of God? Have I twisted God's clear instruction for how I should live Have I justified sin in my mind that I must realign my life to His standard, not my wishes, in order to glorify Him? Will I go on a concerted effort to align my life this morning with the perfect standard of how God wants me to live so that I can glorify God with my life? My friends, Glorifying God is not when you score 50 points in a basketball game. Glorifying God is not in what you've achieved and standing on a bully pulpit to express your love for God. Those are all wonderful things. But you and I glorify God in the way we live our lives. Simple as that. We glorify God in the way we live our lives. We don't even have to say, to God be the glory. We don't even have to say, may glory be brought to your name. Through the way we live our lives, through the way we live our lives, the world should see through our lives that glory is brought to His name. Through the way we live our lives, God's glory should be clearly evident so that others can say of our life, glory be to His name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these clear words of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for how you've used this passage to challenge my life. And I hope it does to many here this morning. May our lives truly bring glory to your name, not through words, not through achievement, but through the way we live our life. And if a word is not spoken, our lives so clearly reflect your glory that the world will give you glory for the way we've lived our life. Challenge us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.